0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power & Politics Podcast for Tuesday, October 31st. On the pod today, Palestinians search through rubble for survivors after an Israeli airstrike hits a Gaza refugee camp. We speak to Israel Defense Force spokesperson Jonathan Conricus about that blast. Plus, we hear from the chair of the UN Human Rights Council Commission on Israel and Palestine. And get the latest from our reporter on the ground. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins me now from Jerusalem. So, Ellen, what else do we know about this strike at the refugee camp?
2: Well, David, we've seen really grim uh, images, footage coming out of the Jabalia refugee camp uh, throughout this afternoon and into uh, the evening, the aftermath of an Israeli uh, airstrike at uh, the camp. Uh, Israel called it a wide-scale strike, and you can see the aftermath. Large craters in the ground, uh, crowds uh, going through the rubble, desperately trying to pull out bodies from the rubble at a nearby hospital, dozens more bodies uh, wrapped in white sheets lined up outside Uh, inside that hospital many more people there desperate for treatment a doctor there uh was interviewed and he said that the strike shook the entire area of the camp and that the injured are everywhere now the israel defense forces spoke about the strike uh, tonight as i said uh calling it a wide scale Strike, they say that it uh, killed a Hamas commander named Ibrahim Briari, uh, who was one of the people responsible for planning the October 7th Hamas attacks uh, here in Israel. Israel also saying it took out other Hamas uh, infrastructure but this also shows you the toll that these strikes are having on civilians. Israel says this shows how Hamas uh, is embedded within civilian infrastructure, but again, this is a really visceral example of the devastating toll on civilians playing out dozens of people uh David killed certainly more uh, many more buried in the rubble. And you know, Jabalia is called a refugee camp, but it's not what you might picture, you know, Hence, When you hear that term, this is a densely populated residential area and you're seeing the aftermath of a strike in such a place tonight.
1: Uh, often when events happen like that, it renews and escalates calls for a ceasefire. That's what's happening today. Ellen, what can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, those calls grow every day, David, and certainly, as you said, they will grow again uh, in the aftermath of this strike and those civilian casualties there. Uh, we did hear from Antonio Guterres, the head of the United Nations tonight, who uh, posted online. We can show you that. Uh, he referred to the uh, escalation. He says, with too many Israeli and Palestinian lives already lost, this escalation, referring to the expanding Israeli ground offensive, uh, only increases the immense suffering of uh, of civilians, We've also heard from a spokesperson for UNICEF saying that Gaza is turning into a graveyard uh, for thousands uh, of children. UNICEF has also said there is no such thing as a safe place uh, in the Gaza Strip. So again, those calls for a ceasefire growing louder, calls for more aid uh, to get into Gaza growing louder. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society said some 59 aid trucks crossed the Rafah border crossing from Egypt into Gaza today. That is only a tiny fraction of what is actually needed, David. But Israel continues to push back on these calls for a ceasefire, saying that in the aftermath of the Hamas attacks in this country, that shook this country, that now is a time for war.
1: Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. Protests have erupted on the streets of the West Bank tonight. This, after that, Israeli airstrike hit a a refugee camp in northern Gaza. Jabalia refugee camp lies on the outskirts of Gaza City. It is within the main northern zone of combat between dug-in Hamas and Israeli troops and tanks. Navi Pillay is the chair of the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry on Israel-Palestine. She's also the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and she joins me now. Navi Pillay, it's nice to have you in the studio. Thanks for Thank joining you.
3: us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I,
1: I'd like to start with, with what the latest of what's happened in Gaza. The Israel Defense Force is admitting, confirming that it launched a military strike into a refugee camp to target a Hamas commander. At this point, we know dozens killed, hundreds injured. What's your reaction to this?
3: Whether Israel is embarking on a strategy of self-defense protecting itself or uh, it has to follow international law. International law on self-defense prohibits indiscriminate bombing and now from what you tell me this is an example of indiscriminate bombing. You cannot fire into a crowd when you're seeking to Nail one individual there. That alone is taking a huge risk. Civilian lives must be protected. That's an obligation that all member states signed up to.
1: Is there a justification? Israel says there was a senior Hamas leader in there who played a significant role in, in masterminding what happened on October 7th, and that Hamas is using civilians as human shields. Does that in any way justify, in your view, their decision to strike this camp?
3: It does not. Once again, let me cite international law. Um, It has to be necessity. So was it really necessary? Maybe it was from their point of view. They identified uh, a a person they were after. But they have to check whether firing into the crowd and harming civilians is a risk. So that's a risk. That's disproportionate and excessive. So they would be violating the laws uh, of, uh, of war. How, how do
1: you get targets like this if you're any military embedded in a civilian population who pose an ongoing risk, in your view, to your security without violating international law? What, what is the legal way to do that?
3: David, uh, there's a military way, I bet. I don't mm-hmm. know. All I know is the legal way is the, the protection of the civilians around that individual rank prior them reaching their target. They have to find ways of reaching that target without harming civilians.
1: Okay, uh, looking at the bigger picture, you, you've been monitoring what's been happening and been done by Hamas and the Israeli military That's right. since the events of October
3: 7th. What is your sense of what you've been seeing? Within two days of the 7th of October, when Hamas launched their attack against civilians in Israel, we issued a statement. We were the first UN institution to do so. We condemned that attack. We demanded the release of all hostages and we called for a cessation of hostilities. And I still stand by that. as High Commissioner for Human Rights, I've been into those areas across the borders, Sterorot in Israel and, and Gaza City. Uh, and what I found is neither side had any sympathy for the children or the civilians on the other side. They felt their own pain, not the pain of others. So we, we need a return to conscious. You have to have a conscience here yeah, about and a humanitarian concern. The law protects civilians. The international law allows you to undertake war, to go after those who have harmed you, but set certain rules. And look, those rules are good. Why? They aim to protect civilians, women and children, non-combatants.
1: There hasn't seemingly been uh, a tremendous concern for non-combatants since it started. I mean, Hamas set out to slaughter as many civilians as, as they could. Um, it is difficult to get a, a clear sense of, of the amount of casualties and deaths uh, coming from inside Gaza, but the aid groups we talk to tell us that the killing of, of children in particular is happening on an industrial scale almost.
3: I, I mean, how do you...
1: Mm. What is your sense of exactly well, how this is being prosecuted? Firstly, I
3: get a sense because I was there as yeah. the High Commissioner for Human Rights and saw how the little children particularly are terrified of these rockets falling on them. These are children in sederet and they're all in bunkers and so on. That's no life for children. And as this horrific attack happens, civilians and children killed in very large numbers, uh, are from the Israeli population. Yes, I think it's horrific. It must be condemned. We immediately started investigations in the sense that we collected all the evidence that is available on social media. Much of it has disappeared since. I don't know who took it off, but we have them. We will work closely with the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. But at least we're going to protect this evidence until it comes of use. So that tracks the killings and indiscriminate firing and deaths that harmed people in Israel. When you say you're going to
1: work with the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, are you talking about against Hamas, against Israel, both? I mean, what, what are you looking at here in terms of the evidence you're building and the crimes you would like to see prosecuted? Perpetrators
3: here? across the border, all perpetrators, whether they are Hamas or the Israeli security forces. That's our mandate, you know, this commission of inquiry. Directs us to look at, find the root causes of the pro- this protracted conflict, find who's responsible, and and investigate for the purposes of justice and accountability. That's what we were doing, and then we were taken aback by the attack. We continued, now more st- strictly, to gather the evidence because it's designed to be used in a courtroom at some point. It has to be very careful, accurate, and so on. We would, of course, like to, and we asked the Israeli authorities whether we could come in. We would really like to speak to the victims, Israeli victims. They should not be neglected. They have a right to tell the United Nations what has happened to them.
1: When when you look at what happened on October 7th by Hamas, that seems pretty clear-cut right? I I mean, I've seen the video that the Israeli government has prepared, and it's a pretty clear series of atrocities against civilians by a designated terrorist organization. Things get murkier in the public conversation when it comes to the actions of Israel in response. They say they're exercising their right of self-defense. Countries like Canada say they support Israel's right to exercise its right to self-defense in accordance with international law, but a lot of people say what has happened in Gaza with the siege, the denial of certain uh, goods and the shelling constitutes collective punishment. What's your sense uh, of what it represents?
3: All right, so firstly international law absolutely prohibits collective punishment because all these uh, criteria have to be observed. Um, proportionality and necessity, just all those cautions actually then excludes collective punishment. We condemn that. So it's not just a murky incident what is happening now. self defense appears to have become retaliation and revenge there is a long tradition there that for every israeli life they have to kill so many others right now we should be absolutely shocked that 7 to 8000 have been killed by israeli security forces mainly by aerial bombing Their buildings they are under those buildings even as we speak so that is where a, a right of defense Unchecked can get totally out of control. There are rules even for war, and this is utterly forbidden. Um, You know, I don't want to keep saying both sides, but all perpetrators will be examined by us to find responsibility. With the first attack, Hamas took responsibility for that attack, therefore, we named them. Mm -hmm. Here, we need further investigation to identify the individuals responsible.
1: You know, as people, we, we've talked to a lot of people about this on the show and what happens after this conflict and where does it go next and what does it mean for a two-state solution and a peace process. And I feel like I've been hearing about the peace process my whole life. You see, you've been there and, and people can only feel their own pain and can't see the suffering on the other side. Is this solvable? How
3: optimistic are you that it can be solved? You know, the, I, I don't want to compare situations, but growing up under apartheid South Africa... Mm. I thought there will never be a solution in my lifetime. So what inspires me is, yes, we got over a 300-year system of oppression, racial oppression. We had good leaders with good direction. So that's what we need here. We need good leaders who do not just repeat the clichés of right of self-defense, two-state solution, the United Nations you know, hangs on to that phrase of two-state solutions. As we look on the ground, we see that so much of territory has been taken away from the Palestinians by Israel. We have documented that as part of the dispossession, the settlements being introduced. The geography has totally changed. They have to get back immediately to the drawing boards to review that two-state solution. I was also, after I'd retired, I spent a week at the university because it's, uh, in Al-Qahtz in Palestine because it's important to be on the ground and to see what the students thinking on the matter. So great distress, desperation and anger from those students. You know, they mm-hmm. have no faith even in the United Nations, let alone other governments or their own governments. Uh, we have to come up with a solution for them. So they don't seem to have any faith in a two-state solution, just by way of example of the thinking on the ground. They, some of them are calling for one state for Israel and Palestine. Is that possible? It's fraught with difficulties because so much of hatred has come in. Right. Um, so why am I hopeful? Because that's where we were that's where we were. We were so divided racially with so little land. Africans, the majority population, were not allowed into the cities and towns. They didn't own any land. And it was an intractable situation. And those who were oppressing us had huge support from rich Western countries who, in fact, owned the assets in South Africa. So in that scenario, it seemed impossible it, but change is possible, and, and how would the collective action of the international community, all of us.
1: Navi Pillay, Chair of the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry on Israel-Palestine. Thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thank you. Thank you for your questions, David.
1: Okay, so as we've been discussing, Israel confirmed this afternoon it hit a refugee camp with an airstrike. Israel's Defense Force says the strike killed a senior Hamas commander. The director of the nearby Indonesian hospital says at least 50 people were killed and 150 wounded. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus is a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. He joins us once again from Tel Aviv. Lieutenant Colonel, welcome back to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: I'd like to start with that strike uh, on the refugee camp, if I could. Do you know, does the IDF know how many civilians were killed and hurt in this strike?
4: Let's uh, rephrase that a bit. What we did was strike and kill an important enemy combatant leader. Uh, We can confirm that he is dead. And we can also confirm that there are dozens of Hamas combatants that were using a tunnel complex underneath that neighborhood that were killed in the same activity. That is the reason for the devastation that you've shown. Uh, That was the objective. And uh, I'm happy to say that that objective has been confirmed. You're citing numbers, again, from the Palestinians. They say 50 killed. I know of dozens enemy combatants that were killed. And as time goes by, we'll be able to confirm and name. But uh, Ibrahim Biari, a Jabalia battalion commander who was a very important part in executing the attack on Israel on October 7th, He has blood on his hands going back to 2004, and as he was struck, he was actively commanding military operations against the IDF from that location. That is the reason that we struck that location. That was the military aim. And I'm happy to say that the aim was achieved.
1: No, I, I understand uh, Mr. Biary and, and the role he has allegedly played, or you believe he played in October 7th. I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but the, the, the number I listed of dead is, is not from the health ministry, which is controlled by Hamas. Their number is much higher. Uh, We're relying on on the director of the Indonesian hospital there who says it's at least 50 and, and 150 or more wounded. So if you have specific intelligence on the Hamas killed and injured, can you give us what you believe the number of civilian killed and injured to be at this point? So
4: not yet, and we are monitoring Hamas communications. We are monitoring open source intelligence, including the ones that you are referring to. And I think uh, caution is the correct way to address any information coming out of Gaza. Uh, I want to emphasize, which we have said previously on our conversations as well, uh, we aren't fighting against the civilians. They are not our enemy. Hamas is the enemy. And the reason that there is significant physical destruction evident is because we struck an underground compound and what appears to have happened is that that underground compound collapsed and that is why there was devastation and I would assess that many of the non-combatant casualties were caused by the implosion of the underground infrastructure. You have to understand that underneath that Jabalia area is a vast complex of Hamas tunnels that they use in order to fight against us. It's been known to be there for a long time. We have warned civilians in the area. Mind you, this is northern Gaza. Two weeks ago, we started warning people to evacuate because we said this is going to be the focal point for significant military operations. They have had time to evacuate. And yet we do not strike civilians. They are not the target. The military commander of Hamas was the target and the target was struck and uh, was eliminated.
1: No, I accept that Ibrahim uh, Biari was the target. And I know you have been telling people to leave northern Gaza for a while. But we've spoken to people on the show or family members of people on the show. They've left the north gone to the south, there was nowhere to stay, there was nowhere to live, so they went back to their homes in the north. And and while I know it has been substantiated, Hamas does operate out of this particular camp. There are still a lot of civilians there, regardless of whether they've been told to leave or not. So how do you make that calculation, Lieutenant Colonel, that this is a legitimate military target, even if civilians are still there? Because for a lot of people in the outside world, this is a difficult thing to wrap their head
4: around. Yes, and I can understand that, and and I'll tell you what we're doing. We are doing exactly the same things that U.S., Canadian, um, Australian, and British troops apply when they apply proportionality and distinction in combat against uh, unconventional fighting against terrorists that are using civilians as human shields. What we are doing is not different from when Allied forces overtook or liberated Mosul from Daesh, ISIS. Uh, In that battle, civilians were unfortunately killed because they were in the wrong place and the terrorists used them as human shields. We do exactly the same, maybe not exactly, because I think that at the end of the day, we warn ahead of our attacks. We take a lot of precautions to minimize the uh, Effect on civilians. We try to get them out of the way, but at the end of the day, we have to fight Hamas. Hamas started this war, they attacked our civilians. We are attacking Hamas back, and we will finish this war with completing it with lots and lots of strikes against commanders, the infrastructure, and everything that supports the Hamas war fighting machine.
1: Proportionality is a word you use. How do we, what is the ratio? I know you say you killed Mr. Biari, Ibrahim Biari, and I know you say dozens of of Hamas fighters. We don't yet know how many civilians, and and it is difficult, as you say, uh, to to get clear information. But what's the ratio? When is the civilian death toll too high to take the shot at a Hamas target?
4: So, I mean, of course, it would be great to have a cookie-cutter formula nobody has not we not the US nobody has a formula and each and every event has to be calculated what is the anticipated military gain and what can we achieve that supports the war effort and what is the calculated price or the casualties and then you measure that and you try to take a a decision based on it And I'll give you other examples there have been dozens of military targets Uh, Infrastructure targets where we knew that Hamas had important facilities inside civilian buildings. We didn't strike those buildings uh, and and, uh, kill Hamas operatives that were in it and civilians. We called ahead. And we informed Palestinian civilians that the the building that they're in is going to be struck because Hamas is using it. And we give you one hour to evacuate, take your belongings, and go uh, to a safer location. We did that dozens of times. Why? Because when it's a target that isn't a live target and it's only about infrastructure, then we take the great precaution to minimize collateral damage. In this case, these were live important combatants that were fighting against us in that very location using the civilians as their human shields uh, intentionally embedding themselves underneath the civilian population with their tunnel complex they leave us no other choice but to strike them there's no other way of eliminating an enemy which is embedded deeply underground and striking the tunnels and that is what we did and we did it after two weeks of telling people to evacuate. I think that is very proportionate, I think it is very fair and I am hard stretched to find any other military that is fighting to defend its own civilians and applying this measure of uh, restraint and proportionality when fighting against a ruthless and brutal enemy. So so where does a facility
1: like the Al-Shifa Hospital fit into this, uh, Lieutenant Colonel? Because I saw the assessment put out by your intelligence services and tweeted by Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, it was either Thursday or Friday of last week, documenting your uh, assessment that there is a Hamas complex underneath that hospital. I know they have been linked to this in the past. And it looked to a lot of people as a justification for the possibility of action against a hospital. Is that what that intelligence release was? And how do you assess a facility like al-Shifa, where the doctors in there tell us it's overflowing with people who can't move?
4: The sad reality in Gaza is that Hamas has no boundaries and nothing is sacred for them. They use hospitals. They fire rockets at us in between UN schools and mosques. They use civilians as human shields and they have actively stopped and limited the evacuation of palestinians from the northern area to the south just in order to keep them in the north and have them as human shields this is what we see as abundantly clear We release the information about Shifa because we see what Hamas is doing. We see them setting the stage, wanting the world to wait for the next atrocity and the next catastrophe and the horrible images that will come out of Gaza. And we want to undermine that narrative and inform people around the world who are willing and intellectually brave enough and honest enough to listen to what we're saying. We don't want to strike any protected sites. We don't want civilians involved. We have tried to evacuate them. We don't want people to be hurt in schools or hospitals or mosques. We want to kill enemy combatants and dismantle their military infrastructure. But when the enemy violates international law, uses protected facilities for military purposes in direct violation of humanitarian law, The first thing that we have to do before we use kinetics is to inform them, the enemy, and then anybody else listening. Your previous guest was uh, one of the most biased people uh, against Israel who has led many uh, so-called investigations against Israel, very focused on what we are doing, extremely little, if any, focused on the atrocities perpetrated against us. And the first thing that we have to do is to present our point of view and to say listen this is what our enemies are doing we do not know what will happen in the future but this is what the enemy is doing they are violating the sanctity of protected sites and it shouldn't be tolerated and we are not going to target the area, but if we are left with no option, if it means defending ourselves, defending our communities in the future, and denying Hamas the ability to fight, we will have to take measures. And it is the responsibility of Hamas to evacuate. And I think that the international community should be united in calling on Hamas not to violate uh, the sanctity of human life and not to use civilians as their human shields and definitely not run their operations under a hospital.
1: No, and I can appreciate the, the, the moral and operational challenge that, that that creates. But there are people in there on ventilators, babies and in incubators, and they can't move. Like, no matter how many times you, you tell them to go, they, they just can't. So how should we interpret what your government put out on Friday about Shifa Hospital? Is that a justification that, that there could come a point where it is a legitimate target? Is that how we should view it? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, so just if you can explain how we should interpret it in your view.
4: Yeah, you do you remember when we issued the uh, uh, warnings and the request to evacuate? Yeah, that was mo- that was almost two weeks ago, and I can tell you from watching Israeli. Uh, citizens evacuated, including elderly people that have been evacuated from Ashkelon in southern Israel and including people elderly and disabled that have been evacuated from Kiryat Shmona in northern Israel. We have more than 250,000 evacuated, internally displaced Israelis as we're speaking. That isn't covered so much in the media because there are no dramatic sites of explosions, but they've been evacuated, including elderly and including clinics and a hospital in Kiryat Shmona. Why does that happen? Because that is our priority. And when we need to evacuate people, we do so. It should be the priority of international organizations, of UNRWA, of the World Health Organization, and of Hamas, who governs the Gaza Strip, to evacuate people if they really care about their safety. And in two weeks... I think you can move a a person who has just undergone heart surgery and you can move people in uh, incubators. Yes, it's uh, inconvenient. Yes, it is dangerous. It is a war zone. But if you want to and if your real priority, real priority is to save life, then you can do it. Definitely in two weeks and you can travel uh, seven or ten kilometers, five miles in two weeks. I think that is definitely achievable.
1: Okay, so just as a final point, I mean, uh, it seems pretty clear that's probably not Hamas's top priority. I I think that's obvious at at this point. But the aid agencies say they're incapable of doing it. Um, You know, uh, you mentioned the UNRWA. They've lost 55, 59 people, I think, at last count. Um, So if they don't move, if they can't move and say they can't move, it's still a legitimate target if Hamas is is operating out of there, um, given the warnings that they've received, in your view?
4: What I can say categorically is that uh, in this war, which was forced upon us after the atrocities of October 7th, and after Hamas attack on us, we will conduct ourselves according to the law of armed conflict. We will use force only where necessary, where it serves a clear military point. And we will distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. Of course, it is never an intended task of us to strike any sensitive facility and definitely not a hospital. But the problem is how Hamas is operating, how they are violating that sanctity. And I think that the responsibility eventually lies with Hamas. Lieutenant Colonel
1: Jonathan Conriquez, spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces, thank you for your time today.
4: Thank you very much.
1: follow-up today from the federal government's divisive decision to pause the carbon tax on home heating oil. The Prime Minister faced pressure in the House of Commons to defend the move and his announcement that there will be no more carbon tax carve-outs to come.
0: There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution.
2: Why don't we let Canadians decide? Why doesn't the Prime Minister pause the tax across the country? until Canadians go to the polls so we can have a carbon tax
0: election. We're now making the decision to phase out home heating oil because it is more expensive, because it is uh, more polluting, and because it is disproportionately relied upon uh, by lower income Canadians who need extra support. When will the Prime Minister stop dividing the country and put in place a measure that gives relief to all Canadians? All
1: right, it's time for the Power Panel to assess all of this. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario joins us, as does Larissa Waller. She's a principal with GT and company executive advisors. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP and a political commentator. And the CBC's Jason Markossoff is in Calgary. And Jason, I'm going to start with you because you're right in the blast radius for this controversy. <laughs> uh, no more carve-outs uh, at all. The Prime Minister reiterating what his Environment Minister and his Natural Resources Minister have said, but it really, really matters when it comes from the boss. How do you think this is going to play uh, in what is already a a pretty angry political
0: place for the Liberals? You know, I think suddenly Albertans and uh, Alberta politicians are not going to like the carbon tax, if you can believe it. (laughs) I'm shocked. I I, I think there's going to be, yeah, I mean, this this is the thing, the people who didn't, what's interesting about this, this whole policy is the people who didn't like the carbon tax, they are really, really, you know, further angered this. Uh, you see Daniel Smith saying that we should absolutely have a carve out for natural gas. Uh, Scott Moe, the Saskatchewan Premier, going as far as saying, not only do we uh, need this carve out for natural gas, if we don't have it come January, I'm going to order the Crown Corporation that run that provides natural gas to Saskatchewanians um, to not apply the tax basically i'm going to tell them to break the federal law um but the the challenging thing for the uh federal government as you heard in your your clip i believe that was jagmeet singh uh, who has up till now not been ranting and raving about the carbon tax um saying that he he thinks this is uh disagreeable uh we have uh, alberta ndp leader and former premier rachel notley um, linking arms with Daniel Smith and proposing uh, that the feds um, give relief to uh, Albertans who are on natu- who use natural gas to heat their homes, um, economists uh, who love this are, are wearing black and veils and rending their cloth, um, embarrassed mm-hmm. by how badly uh, Justin Trudeau has effectively killed in their mind the uh, the carbon tax. Um, this is this seemingly perfect mess that uh, Justin Trudeau finds himself in, and he is saying that we 're doing this because. Uh, heating oil is the most polluting of uh, of fuels to heat to uh, fuel uh, to heat a home. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly, and I'm not sure it's been clear yet, and if something can help me with this, why that means that that should not have the uh, carbon tax. The economic argument, the the pain it costs, I mean, the, it's a costlier fuel, so it yep. will additionally cost more. I get that, but I'm not sure the uh, this is the really bad fuel, therefore we shouldn't tax it. Well, um, it would be akin to saying we shouldn't be taxing SUVs.
1: Well, I, I, look, I, I, I've asked, because uh, that jumped out at me too. Uh, the explanation... I've got and Michelle maybe you can pick it up from here uh, in terms of the communications and around this for the government mm-hmm. is that you're marrying this pause with an aggressive heat pump replacement program So that is to incentivize people to get rid of this dirty fuel source and go aggressively to the cleaner heat pump option. So it's sort of without saying that, which I think they might have wanted to say, Michelle, that is the justification that we're making it easier for low-income people with oil to get to the heat pump by pausing and subsidizing the transition, knowing full well that in three years, should that come to pass, they'll all be smacked with it again. So, Michelle, do you think they're doing a good job on this one? Where are they?
5: Well, you know, I'm going to separate it in two. You know, I think that the Prime Minister probably tried to shorthand a little bit his answer in question period today. And so um, a more um, uh, thoughtful uh, response that actually talked about the, about the replacement of these home heating fuels would have been um, far stronger for his argument. But what I will say is that, you know, they're responding to the politics of the situation. And it is a big issue in Atlantic Canada and they were feeling the regional pressure, and so they have now done something. Um, and they are, you know, linking it to their long-term objectives in terms of carbon policy, but, you know, kind of tying it to the reality of the inflation and the, just the cost of living pressures that families are feeling. Now, um, they've been very firm that they're not going to uh, open us up to anything else. But I also think that they that once you kind of open the door an inch, I have a hard time believing that Vote Rich Ontario isn't going to try and push that door open even further. Um, and uh, obviously the Prairie premiers are already kind of making a case. So right. I think this, this issue is going for a long time. And I hope that they actually have a much longer term communication strategy well thought out um, as the pressures come uh, if they want to sustain where they are.
1: Well, as, as luck would have it, Larissa is from Vote Rich Ontario, and she's right there in the liberal-rich uh, GTA. Um, you know, and they say no more carve-outs, Larissa, but I'm old enough to remember when the Greenbelt wasn't going to be open, and look where we are on that now. I, I mean, does this become a, a, a tenable political position um, for uh, the Prime Minister, given the reaction that we've seen since the announcement last week?
6: So, so to be clear, um, what you just said and what Michelle said, this was a political decision. And it's funny to see um, the prime minister, the natural resources minister, the deputy prime minister, um, all give you know policy excuses as to why they did this for Atlantic Canada and not the rest of the country. The The only briefing note that would have gone to cabinet on this would be polling numbers, right? Nothing has changed from the time that... Um, They brought in the carbon tax to today uh, on the energy mix that Canadians use regionally across the country. So it's not like today we woke up and suddenly heat pumps are expensive to install, not enough people are installing them. The thing that changed is the cost of living. The thing that changed are people starting to get bills in their mail. And politicians are hearing about it. So I don't trust for for a hot second that there won't be more carve outs. Maybe they'll call it something else, right? Maybe this will be a master class in communications where it's not a carve out, it's a new policy. But they will absolutely continue to manipulate the situation to suit them politically as we get closer and closer to the election.
1: Francoise, I I guess what has kind of changed, uh, uh, Larissa's right, the energy mix did not change, but a lot of the Atlantic provinces, if not all of them, found a way to jerry-rig their own uh, uh, carbon pricing system in the early days of the implementation of this policy that shielded home heating fuel from the carbon pricing mechanism until this year when they couldn't sustain it anymore and meet stringency. So then rather than the carbon tax going up a little bit a year, it was boom, coming in all at once at $65 a tonne. And that just became uh, an unbearable political circumstance for for the Liberal MPs, it seems, but also a a pretty tough economic circumstance on some low-income Atlantic Canadians who have no alternative to switch to from the oil tanks they have on the side of their house.
7: And I think that's where the the Liberals might have made a mistake when they announced it uh, in in high fashion last week uh, with uh, all the MPs from Atlantic Canada uh, a lot of people had a sense that it was an affordability uh, measure. And that's kind of the tension that it, it it took because of all the factors my colleagues have, have uh, enumerated. But today, it's as if the prime minister during QP was trying to recenter on the fact that, oh, we're just suspending on the most polluting one. And we're making sure that people will buy heating pumps and, and use the three-year time, three time period to do so. And it's available everywhere, the, the, the resources is used. So they tried to refocus, but the damage was already done. And when today the Prime Minister says, we will not do it for any other things, a lot of people are died, doubting because never nobody would have expected I, me, the first one, never thought that they would even suspend, be it for for a few months, even the winter month, for one year, or 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 whatever. So the dent has been made. Uh, I, I foresee some problems a bit with the with the caucus, though, because on French TV this weekend, uh, Minister of Environment Stephen Gilbo, who was uh, not there during the announcement in Atlantic Canada was asked point blank, blank by Daniel Thibault from uh, Les Coulisses du Pouvoir, uh, are you behind the measure as Environment Canada, uh, uh, Environment uh, Minister? And he said, yes, I understand the logic behind it. Will there be any other ones? And he said, not while a Minister of Environment. So either they change their mind and we lose a Minister of Environment and that would not look good. They're kind of cornered in in this situation and the uh, I don't know if you saw during QP but uh, Poiliev looking at uh, uh, Justin Trudeau and going bring it on buddy come on we're ready for for an election you know what the the big team will be uh, all through.
1: Yeah. And you know, look, Jason, I, I know this is technically a national policy. Uh, I, people have been yelling at me for not making that point, saying it's an Atlantic carve-out. But no province outside of Atlantic Canada has more than like 2%, maybe 4% of Quebec of people that burn oil. I mean, this is, yes, it's national, but it's all about that Atlantic issue. But on, on that issue around Minister Gilbeau, and we've asked him to come on the show. He hasn't been available uh, since then, <laughs> but we did note what he said uh, to uh, my colleague Danielle Thibault. What sort of a political position, Jason, does this put him in? Because the Atlantic premiers have been targeting him for criticism uh, in terms of his zeal to leave the policy untouched on clean fuel standard and on, on, on carbon pricing and push back quite successfully. And once this was announced, Premier Fury kind of took a shot at him saying, this isn't a Stephen Goebo thing, this is Freeland, this is the prime minister giving credit to them. Where does this leave him as minister?
0: Well, he's going to probably see car- carving knives, despite the talk about no car- carve outs He's going to see carving knives around everywhere. Mm. Um, you know, if, if 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 Fury is still uh, is still frustrated after this uh, after this this great softening of uh, the carbon tax, uh, and that's going to be a challenge because certainly. Um, Mo and uh, and Smith here in Alberta and Saskatchewan are uh, frustrated. There's frustration from uh, David Eby in uh, British Columbia and probably elsewhere among people who are on natural gas furnaces and say, "Hey, I'd like a great incentive, or to, uh, to either have a full loan to pay for my." Uh, to pay for my heat pump, or to make it free if I'm on natural gas, well, so I can uh, reasonably, uh, you know, convert. Um, so there will be those frustrations all around the pro- all around the country. And you know, Gil Beau is, you know, he he's very happy to champion a lot of these policies, such as the clean electricity regulations that are. In- bring uh something close to net zero by 2035 and the cap on oil and gas but uh this is going to be one where you know he has to play the team and uh, his team includes atlantic uh, liberal mps who who knows how how frustrated they were um and he's going to have to if he wants to stick around to this job and uh in this caucus um you know be that team player and uh Take this uh, this for what he and uh, a lot of environmental activists uh, from which Ilkie came from uh, will see as hard medicine.
1: Mm-hmm. Michelle, is that uh, a doable thing? Just be a team player, take some water in your wine, or is he being put in a pretty tough spot here?
5: Well, you know, I think governing isn't about being so rigid on policy that you aren't responsive to what Canadians are saying, what your caucus members are saying, um, and eventually you actually are going to go out and get judged by Canadians. You're going to get out and getting, uh, you know, being asked for, for further support. So you need to be responsive in terms of your policy agenda. And you can still have your long ar- overarching goals, but you do have to be part of, a, of being a team player. And that's what, you know, politics is the ultimate team sport for people maybe without any kind of sporting skills. <laughs> <It's>, um, that's <laughs> And you have to be able to work together. And so, um, you know, I think that... Um, You know, Mr. Kuo has been there for for quite some time. He feels passionately about the environment. Um, But I think and I hope that he feels just as passionately about about the government. And, uh, you know, if the Liberals can't get reelected, then all of these policy, grand policy ideas and objectives are for naught. Because, you know, Mr. Polyev is not going to continue them on. So, um, you know, you have to bring in realism to this right. and it's kind of the art of what can get done, moving in the right direction and not necessarily that grand panacea of, uh, of the, the greatest um, and the biggest move in policy terms um, that you might like as, uh, as someone who cares about the issue.
1: Larissa, I guess that's the, the reality of it, right? That you take a, a slightly eroded version of what you want uh, at the risk of losing all of what you have if the politics doesn't turn around.
6: So, so I think a lot I could go uh, in a lot of directions with that one. Um, I you know <laughs> what with with the carbon tax, if you're talking about um, taking a part of it, it's kind of an all or nothing thing, right? They started diluting the part, the carbon tax. They started as soon as they started talking about giving a rebate. So when when they brought in the tax on on cigarettes to reduce smoking, if they had come up with a tax on cigarettes and said, "But we're going to send you a check so that you don't feel any economic impact uh, <laughs> or on the tax," nobody would have stopped smoking. The whole point of the carbon tax is to make behavior unaffordable so that you change your behavior. The problem with the carbon tax in Canada. One, it's a cold country. We heat our homes in the winter. There's vast spaces. We drive a lot. Groceries have to be transported, you know, far. Um, The carbon tax is one tool in in the fight against climate change. It's not the only tool. And I think this government has treated the carbon tax like the sacred cow of climate change and the minute you question that, the minute you ask about anything else, you're suddenly a climate change denier. So, if you had played that clip between uh, Polyev and and Trudeau right to the end, at the end of his response to Polyev, he called conservatives climate change deniers, and that is, you know. That's typical for this prime minister. He plays divisive politics, and he doesn't allow for nuanced conversations on big, important issues. So, you know, this is pretty typical behavior, I think.
1: Right. Uh, I, I've got about thirty seconds left, Francoise, if You'd have a final thought. I, I think. I think the lack of nuance in this conversation goes in a lot of directions. <laughs> I would just. I would just say I, I think that's a fair comment. Not, not editorializing too much, but thirty seconds, Francoise, Just a final thought. Then I, I got to get to a break.
7: I, I'm just amazed. that I, I even forgot to talk about Goody Hutchins. I mean, she said it all when she <laughs> yeah. said it was political. The biggest problem with this whole carving a bit, uh, not too much and just temporarily, is that it's cr- a question of credibility. Uh, when they will say something is good for the environment, will, they, with, will the Canadian uh, public believe it? Will they think it's forever? Uh, it, it just gives munition to the, the Conservatives, and they must be so happy with it.
1: Well, they certainly seemed uh, ebullient uh, today.
7: <laughs> All right. <laughs> I,
1: I, I want to thank the power panel, Michelle, Larissa, Francoise, and Jason. Thanks so much, gang. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.